When Dumadi first joined a Chinese fishing vessel, he was passed from ship to ship for months, with little contact from the outside world. Until one day, when he caught a lucky break. At the time of passing through the water of South Korea, we got very lucky. My friend's cell phone suddenly picked up a network and we quickly called the Korean police emergency number. We were connected through an Indonesian translator and reconnected to the Indonesian embassy in Korea. The Indonesian embassy was quick to respond. South Korean authorities sent a police boat chasing after the fishing vessel and Dumadi and his fellow crewmates tried to signal them. But a Chinese crew member showed us and forced us to go into hiding in the boat's storage room. Finally, the Korean police got closer and helped me and my two friends. Then, the Chinese booth we were working on was taken to the port of Ulsan, South Korea, with all the Chinese on board. Dumadi was able to get help from the embassy to go back to Indonesia. This is a rare instance where a fisherman who has been exploited on a fishing vessel has been able to seek help. The name has been changed, the words are being read by a proxy, but the account is real. From Latrobe Asia, this is The Catch. Hello, I'm Beck Strading, the director of Latrobe Asia. And in this special mini-series, we'll be hearing about the problem of modern-day slavery and forced labour in the offshore fishing industry across the Asia-Pacific region. This is episode three, Restitution. I'm joined in this by Dr Sally Yeh, a Tracy Banavanua Ma Fellow at La Trobe University and a human geographer and expert in the human impact of modern-day slavery and human trafficking. Thank you for joining me, Sally. Thank you, Beck. Sally, was what we heard from Jumadi an extreme experience? How do the men normally leave these fishing vessels? That's a really good question. Jumadi was lucky in many ways because he was located and rescued by the Korean authorities. Most of the fishers in our research have to wait until the vessel docks at a port and then jump ship. After this, they might seek help from a local NGO or from their embassy if they're lucky. The problem is that the men then become unlawful if they do this, as they don't have visas to enter port states where they dock. So unfortunately, this can put them at further risk. Some of the men are able to successfully plead with their captains to release them from their contracts But this isn't very common either. And often the captain will make them sign an agreement not to lodge any complaint or the captain might deduct further payment from them in order to release them from their contract. So ultimately the problem here is very lax victim identification procedures for the fishers who've been trafficked or who are forced labourers on these vessels. Checking of vessels for breaches of labour standards only occurs in some countries, such as Thailand, and doesn't occur at all in international waters. Mm. So identifying, rescuing and protecting victims is currently one of the biggest gaps in addressing this problem, at least in my opinion. 
Now, we heard in the last episode some of the horrific uh, work and living conditions that some of these men have faced in terms of injuries and illness and even death. So thinking about when these men return home, what sort of compensation might be available for fishers or for their families? Yeah, well, in actual fact, very little is available for the men or for the families of deceased fishermen, unless an NGO, for example, takes on their case and provides them with pro bono legal support. And this process is often long and tedious, as there's usually very little evidence that can be collected and used in court. And often the fishers are seen as lacking credibility compared to the more educated owners of the fishing vessels or the recruitment agencies, for example. Look, in an ideal world, the fishers could claim restitution for unpaid salaries and forced overtime and so on. And they could claim compensation for trauma and injuries that they've suffered on the vessels. But, you know, we live in less than an ideal world as far as justice for these men is concerned. There really must be thousands of men who could benefit from this form of remedial justice. And in my opinion, this would undoubtedly go a long way towards breaking the cycle of poverty and in reducing their vulnerability to being recruited for this kind of precarious work on fishing vessels in future. My fellow crewmates and I complained to SBMI. After that, our Indonesian agency was pressed by them to meet our demands. It was effective. SBMI also forced the ship's captain to dismiss the foreman who beat one of my comrades. He was also ordered to pay 500 Fijian dollars in restitution for his disruptive behavior. On 7 December 2020, we returned home. I went to the SBMI Tagal office as soon as I arrived in Indonesia. I reported my case to SBMI and they assisted me in speaking with the Manning Agency. The Manning Agency then wired the deposit money I had paid first, promising to pay my salary later. They stated that they were unable to directly transfer my salary because the Chinese agency had not yet transferred my remaining salary. After three months of waiting, I finally received my salary. So we've also heard about how the fishing vessel operators are able to circumvent regulations by forging documents, as an example. And I wanted to ask you, Sally, then about accountability. I mean, how are these fishing operators held to account? Are there adequate repercussions against these fishing companies that engage in modern-day slavery and human trafficking at sea? Well, much like the issue of compensation and restitution, there's very little in the way of successful criminal justice in cases of those who perpetrate crimes of human trafficking or forced labour on the fishing vessels. 
there's been very few successfully prosecuted legal cases, criminal cases within the Asian region that have resulted in convictions of either recruitment agencies or fishing fleet operators and companies and fishing captains. You could probably say there might be four or five successful Mm. cases that have resulted in convictions and or in fines. The message there for those who want to engage in these practices is that they can really operate with impunity and there's little chance that they will be investigated or prosecuted for any kinds of crimes that they perpetrate on these vessels or in the recruitment process. And again, that's another area that really requires a lot more research in looking at what the gaps in justice actually are and how justice can be better served to reduce the vulnerability of of victims who have already been exploited, but also to prevent further exploitation in future. So I did ask you before about compensation and whether there is, you know, remedy available for men who have experienced things like injury or illness uh, on the fishing vessels. But across the narratives, one of the things that seems to be in common is that none of the men were even successful in receiving the salary they were promised, let alone adequate payment or compensation after their experience. Is that an accurate impression? Yes, I think that's definitely true. I think most of the recruitment agencies, they make the men sign agreements to the effect that they'll forfeit their salaries if they break their contracts, which are normally two to three years. And we did touch on that in the first episode when we looked at recruitment practices. But what this actually means is that if the conditions become unbearable on the fishing vessels and the men want to leave, they will get nothing for the time that they've worked. So this effectively traps men on the fishing boats Those who lodge civil claims for unpaid salary or compensation for injuries or other trauma on the vessels, well, it's a very uphill battle because of these agreements and substituted contracts that they're forced to sign. So very sad to say that very few of the fishers have managed to realise any form of justice, including all the men who participated in our study. So I want to get onto this topic of justice and you've done a lot of research on the post-trafficking experience of fishers and their engagement with justice systems across Asia and the Pacific. So what, in your view, are the key barriers that make it difficult for these men to achieve justice once they return home? Rather than looking at barriers, I would look really at measures that perhaps should or could be adopted to improve the likelihood that justice 
will be served in these cases. And I think some of the main measures that I would see that would need to be adopted are, first of all, better victim identification procedures because men find it difficult to receive any kind of support if they are not formally identified as victims of trafficking or forced labour. So, you know, nothing's going to happen unless there's better victim identification procedures put in place in the first instance. Another thing I think that could be adopted is better and I guess more regular perhaps capacity building of law enforcement and justice sector authorities. And this I think would allow these actors to understand how victimology in the global fishing industry is actually expressed, to understand the experiences of these men much better than they currently do. And in large part, that was really a lot of what this project was about, was allowing the victims themselves to put forward their case, to really articulate their narratives and their experiences to a wider audience. And that would and should include law enforcement and justice sector stakeholders. Also, I think that there should be greater cooperation between government authorities and NGOs. I mean, we know that NGOs do so much work with victims of seafood slavery, but they often do it under constraints of capacity and funding and a better and stronger relationship with government authorities could really enhance the really important work I think that these NGOs undertake on behalf and with the fishermen. And I think something that I've heard from a few NGOs around the region recently is the need for a dedicated government fund to provide victims with some form of compensation should they be unable to secure this through the legal system. So in ASEAN, for example, the only country that has this dedicated fund for victims of trafficking and forced labour is Thailand. That is a good model, I think, for other countries in the region to follow. I think that's really important in thinking about achieving justice or at least being able to achieve some kind of compensation. And of course, as we've already discussed, there really needs to be more accountability of fishing vessel owners and fleets because usually it's the brokers and the recruitment agencies who are targeted by the police, for example, when they're investigating these crimes. So... What are the plans of these fishers once they return home? I know that there's, you know, probably a number of different answers to that question, but across the interviews and the narratives of these fishers, uh, what do you see as some of the dominant trends in uh, what these men do once they complete their time in the fishing industry? Well, I think there are many different trajectories that the men take once they leave the fishing vessels. Sadly, some of them go straight back to work on other fishing vessels 
And usually this is because of a lack of any other decent option or perhaps a belief that things might be different on a different fishing vessel or perhaps with a different fishing fleet. So, for example, if they had a bad experience on a South Korean vessel, they might opt to work for a Chinese fleet. That's really quite sad to think that the men will return to very precarious work situations on fishing vessels because they really see no other choice for them. Other men get different jobs outside of the fishing industry, but almost universally these are low-skilled and low-paid and low-valued jobs. But, of course, one of the impacts of COVID across this region has been a rise in unemployment and a lack of decent work opportunities. So there's a swelling of this underclass of very vulnerable and precarious men and women who are desperate for some kind of work. And it's my feeling that, of course, that the fishing industry will take advantage of that. Other men, like Timo, who we'll hear in a minute, they find themselves living with the long-term impact of injuries that they've sustained during their time on the fishing vessels. Nowadays, I'm suffering from arthritis, which was caused by the wearing out of my backbone due to the heavy workload on the fishing boats, heavy lifting, continuous manual work in the cold, and at night when the fish were usually processed and on a swing platform have badly affected my body. My health problems have been exacerbated by the lack of sleep and insufficient and non-nutritious food on board. As for now, I would not want to encourage anyone to try out longline fishing because I would not want to see anyone limp around like me. Our next episode will be joined by Associate Professor Christina Stringer from the University of Auckland and we'll be talking about how these men uh, seek to reintegrate into society and issues to do with livelihoods in that episode. Thank you for joining us again, Sally. You're welcome, Beck. You've been listening to The Catch, a podcast mini-series produced by La Trobe Asia. And you can find the report on the La Trobe Asia website. Our theme music is Fruition by Edoy. This podcast was developed with the support of the United States Agency for International Development. The views do not necessarily reflect those of USAID. My name is Beck Strading and thank you for listening.